0: We're in 1 John, as uh, Barclay told us. How would you respond to somebody, maybe a friend at school or work, uh, maybe a family member, who says that Christianity is just a religion of rules? It's all about religious rules. There might be some people who make that claim themselves here tonight, or maybe watching online. Maybe you think... Christianity is just about the rules you have to follow. But I expect if we're believers, um, that probably is most of us in the room, I expect, uh, we would want to respond to them and say, no, 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 you've you've misunderstood what Christianity is. Christianity is much more about a relationship than it is about the rules we have to follow. It's about knowing God uh, through Jesus Christ. It's about forgiveness of sin. Um, And... If you think of Christianity as merely a list of rules that you have to follow, then really you are in grave danger of falling into the trap of self-righteousness. That's what people have been doing for centuries. Uh, It's one of the things that is most commonly addressed in the New Testament. You've totally misunderstood. But then your friend or family member would turn around and say, but look, if I became a Christian today, wouldn't there be a whole list of rules that you would expect me to have to follow? I'd have to get baptized, for starters. There's one rule. You'd expect me to turn up to church. There's another rule. And there's all sorts of other things that you would expect me to change in my life if I was going to become a Christian. You've got rules about marriage. You've got rules about sexual ethics and divorce. Uh, You've got rules about the fact of me going to work and needing to provide for myself and my family. You've got rules about the way I care for others. You've got rules even about the words that I use in my conversation. You've got rules about the jokes that I can tell. Rules, rules, rules you've got. If Christianity isn't about rules, then why are there so many rules that we have to stick to? Okay. Now, these might be questions that you hear. They might be questions that you have yourself. um, Or they might be issues that perhaps you've brushed aside due to a misunderstanding or never been explained to you. What I want to show you this evening. Is that the Christian life. Listen carefully. The Christian life is characterized in part by obedience to God's commands. Okay, Now that's different from saying Christianity is all about rules. But the similarity. Let me say it again. The Christian life is characterized in part by obedience to God's commands. But those commands are not burdensome or heavy or repressive. Those commands, our obedience to those commands is the natural response. Of our changed hearts. That's the big idea that I want to get across to you today. First, I need to show you that to love God is to keep his commandments. Our love for God is shown by our obedience to his commandments. Now, it's easier to spot where I'm getting this from. Because if you've got one John in front of you, chapter 5, verse 3, John says, This is love for God, to obey his commands. Now, where does he get that statement from? Uh, How how has he got to that point? Well, let's back up a little bit. Go up to chapter 4, verse 20. And in chapter 4, verse 20, he first joins together this idea of love for God with love for brothers and sisters. Uh, And following uh, what he said all about love, he says now in verse 20 that our love for brothers and sisters is a real good test of whether we love God. Now, there's two reasons it gives so of why it's a good test. First reason is because your brother's needs are there in front of you. You can see the people that you ought to be loving. And if you can see their needs um, and you are still unab- you still ignore them, then how can you possibly properly love God who you can't see, whose relationship with you is, is hidden, as it were? It's much easier to deceive yourself with the unseen relationship than it is to deceive yourself with the visible relationship. So first, there's an issue of you can see your brother, you can't see God. But the second reason that love for brother is a good test of whether you love God is because God has commanded us to love our brothers. Verse 21, he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Well, if you're not obeying God's commands, in what sort of sense do you love God? But that's a bit of a funny thing, isn't it? And sometimes I wonder this, when, when we're... Disciplining our children or other people's children, which does happen occasionally. You tell them, for example, say sorry to that child that you've hurt. And you wonder, what's the point in telling them to say sorry? Are, are they really actually sorry? You know, it, like if, if now I said, uh, Barclay, show some love, please, to Margaret. Show, show some love, please, Barclay. This is important for my illustration. Please show some love to Margaret. Right, I could go on and go on. I, I could maybe eventually get him to say something, okay? But even if I did, do you expect Margaret would really feel loved by Barclay, whatever he chose to say to her? You know, even if you just asked her how he was doing, how she was doing, you know, it would seem very forced, okay? And I think John maybe has this in mind, because in chapter 5, verse 1, he almost repeats exactly his closing words of chapter 4, but he rephrases them. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says, um, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And uh, that second part of that first verse is the bit that's almost repeated. Everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. Now, let me just adjust the translation here. Not because the NIV has got it wrong. Uh, it it's very plainly says what's what going on. But there's a bit of a wordplay that John is using that, that Uh, presents an emphasis and that's hidden in the English because it's very clumsy to get across. But let me give it a go. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been fathered by God. And everyone who loves the one who fathers loves those who have been fathered by him. OK, did he catch what, I was, what was going on there? So r- rather than uh, John talking about uh, children of God and being born of God and uh, the, f- the father that we normally call the father, um, he's using one word repeatedly, the, the word that is sometimes translated begotten or fathered, as I put in my translation. And so what John is doing is he's presenting the very same command that came up in chapter five, verse 21. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. But he's presenting it with a different emphasis. Because now he's saying, you're loving, not because you've got this command, but you're loving because of who you are. You're a child brought into this family. You're loving because of who God is. He is your father. And you're loving because of who your brother and sister is. They're also fathered by this same God. Therefore, you're part of their family. And he shifts the emphasis. It's no longer a a command to, to do so much. It still is a command that we have to obey. But now the emphasis is on this Family relationship that we have, both with one another and with God, our common father. Now, if you take this command to love as a prime example of God's, of all God's commands, perhaps you can already see where this message is going to go tonight and how we get to the point of God's commands not being burdensome. And their, um, the relational quality of them. Uh, but we're not, we're not at verse three yet. We're not quite there. In verse 2, John moves on. And what he does in verse 2 is, well, he achieves two important things. First, he makes sure that this love for our brothers and sisters does not remain a vague, woolly thing. He settles it with some real specifics. He did this back in chapter 3, verse 17, when he said, look, if you're going to love your brother, but you're not going to use your material possessions, then that is no love at all. Uh, He gave a, a, a real specific, concrete example to engage us in this act of love. And he says here, look, if you're going to love the children of God, you've got to do it by loving God and by carrying out his commands. And so the first thing he does is he stops it being vague. And the second thing he does is he expands it from the one command of loving your brother to now dealing with all of God's commands. Verse two. How do you know that you love the children of God? How do you know that you are fulfilling that command that you were given? In verse 21, how do you know that you are living out that relationship that was mentioned in verse one? Well, you love God and you carry out his commands. Do You see what he's done? He said, here's one specific command. Love your brothers. But in order to achieve this one specific command, you're going to need to obey all of God's commands. Now, that's nothing new, really. We ought to be aware of that if, we've, if we're not even diligent studiers of our New Testament. Some of the most popular verses to, to remember and to recite to one another are uh, such verses like um, when people asked Jesus what was the greatest commandment. And one of the greatest commandments, that Jesus said, was to love your neighbor as yourself. Paul, in his writings, says that the whole of God's law is summed up in the one command to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, perhaps there's a mistake that sometimes we make. We hear about this summing up in one command. We hear about the greatest command. And in our minds, that becomes like rule one out of 600. And really, it's the most important. And we've got to get that one right. But the other ones are kind of not quite optional, but they're less important. But when Jesus talks about it being the greatest command, and when Paul talks about it summing up the whole law, he's not saying this is rule one out of 613, or however many there might be. He's saying, this is point number one with 613 subpoints. He's saying, the way that you obey God's law is by loving others. And conversely, if you want to love others, you do that by obeying God's law. So the greatest command is not just the first command in the book, it's actually the title of the book. And all the other commands are part of, they're the way that we love our neighbour. They are the way that we love God. So if you went back to those examples that I gave in the introduction, you would say, look, the Christian life is not about loving your neighbour and turning up to church. The Christian life is loving your neighbour by turning up to church, being a committed part of the fellowship and the family which God has put you in. The Christian life is not about loving your neighbour and maintaining the uh, the regard to sexual ethics. The Christian life is loving your neighbour by honouring marriage uh, in society, in community and in our families. It's loving your neighbour by uh, sticking to the the rules of sexual ethics that God gives us in his word. The Christian life is not a life of loving your neighbour and then also being careful about the language you use. And the jokes that you tell. The Christian life is loving your neighbour by being careful about the words you use. And watching out about what you discuss and what you bring to other people's minds. What has John established for us so far? Verse 1 he said, The way to demonstrate your love for the one who fathered you is to love the others he has fathered. In verse 2 he said, The way to love those that God has fathered is to keep the commands of God. And so to put the two together, to love God, is to keep his commands. To love God is to keep his commands. And that, that brings us to verse 3. Now perhaps at this point, that unbeliever that, that we mentioned at the beginning turns around and says, well, gotcha, told you. The Christian life is all just about following rules. And you've said it yourself, Seth. Okay? But I will contest at this point. And say that to describe Christianity as a religion of rules is actually a mischaracterization. Think about how you would ask someone to describe marriage, for example. It would be very odd if a person describes marriage as it's about keeping a set of promises that I once made. Now, it's true that marriage is keeping a set of promises that you once made. But it'd be odd to characterise marriage as that. It would be especially odd to characterise marriage as making sure the other person keeps the promises that they once made to me. You know, what would you describe childhood as? It would be odd if you described childhood as just the years of your life where you get where you get told what to do by other people. Well, childhood does include those things, but childhood is so much more than those things. It's about learning and finding your limits and finding your place in the world and uh, and and so on, growing up. What is Christianity all about? Well, it's true that it involves obedience to God's commands. But to make that as primary is is to miss the point. In fact, the, the verse, even verse 3, the point the, the, the point where it says that, the point where it emphasizes the commands, even verse 3 is saying it's not really about the commands, it's about the love. This is love for God to keep his commands. Keeping commands, then, is not the the main characterizing point of Christianity. But keeping commands is an evidence of the love that we have for God. Why does a person obey any instruction that they're given? Sometimes it might be through fear. Uh, Sometimes it might be through social pressure. Everybody else follows the same instruction. Sometimes it might be because you get paid or rewarded to do it. Sometimes it might just be habit of life. They would have done it anyway, even if you didn't ask them to do it. Maybe you can see each of those examples in your own life at different points. But people also obey instructions, obey commands, because of their love for the one who has commanded it. People obey as a response of love. And that's why John says Christians are obeying God's commands. This is love for God. To obey. And so having shown you first that love for God is obedience, secondly, I want to show you that this love obedience is not burdensome. It's not heavy and demoralizing. It's not a cloud that follows around threatening to, to punish us with, with the first failure. It's not a heavy weight. It's not demoralizing. But in fact, this, this, these commands of God are actually a response of our New natures. Anniversary, he says, his commands are not burdensome. Verse 4, for or because everyone born of God overcomes the world. The idea of being born of God has come up repeatedly through 1 John. Uh, skip back, if you've got a Bible, to chapter 3, verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. To be born of God, according to John, is to have God's seed within you. So changing you uh, to live in the pattern that God desires. Sin is essentially opposition to God. But now that God's seed is within us, to sin is, in a sense, to be in opposition to ourselves. And so it's not just a command that we're given not to sin, but actually it's part of our new nature. We can't go on sinning. Because to go on sinning would be to oppose ourselves now that we are children of God. But unless you've got God's seed, the commands of God will be burdensome. They will be burdensome because you'll constantly try to, you'll constantly find yourself trying to live up to a standard that you cannot achieve. The standard is too high for you. The standard says do not lie. And you find that you can reduce your lying, but maybe not always. The standard is too high. But the standard is also of a different nature that you just cannot achieve at all. You cannot even make progress towards it. Chapter 4, verse 7 says, love comes from God. This is why believers love one another, because love comes from God. And unless you have been born of God, unless you have his seed living in you, there is no way you can achieve this truly sacrificial, self-giving love that originated in the Trinity of God himself. Because only those who have been born of God are given this love to then share with others. God's standard is not just too high for us. It's also of of an entirely different nature, unless we have been born of God. But if we are born of God, then it means the commands aren't burdensome. Because they're not stood opposed to us, but they're leading us on to the people that we ought to become. The, The people that we are now, in fact. They're the practical description of what life looks like for the children of God. And secondly, they're not burdensome because they are now our desire. Uh, His commands are not burdensome, verse 4, for or because everyone born of God overcomes the world. The world is another idea that comes up repeatedly through 1 John. And you see it most clearly explained in chapter 2, verse 16. Everything in the world, that is, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. These things are the world. Do you see how the world is not just a group of people out there? The world can be a group of people, a group of people characterized by these things, but the world is not just a group of people. The world is a set of desires and ambitions, a set of beliefs. Uh, The world is um, the influences, even that appear in our own lives. And it's these kind of desires which would find God's commands to be burdensome. Because they're in opposition to God's commands. The world says, love self, take the lust of your eyes and the desires of your heart. And God says, love others and love me. The world is going to be in opposition to God. It's going to find God's commands burdensome. But those born of God, John says, overcome the world. They're given a new set of desires. And a new target to chase after, a new set of ambitions. An engineering student never complains that he's not being taught the history of art. A music student never complains that they're not getting any experience in A&E on a Friday night, because they're not training to be a doctor. A child of God doesn't find the commands of God burdensome, because rather than the commands of God being, being away from who they want to be, the commands of God are leading them to the person that they are now seeking to become. Now, what's the purpose of all this that John writes? Remember that the letter as a whole is written to those who believe for the purpose of them knowing that they might have eternal life. And in the verses that we've read this evening, John has been providing a description of what a Christian believer looks like, a a test, if you like, of what true faith is. And so one practical implication of what we're hearing is to check Against your own Christianity. Check your love for God. Does your love for God ever include. Obedience to his commands. Does your desire to love God include a desire to take seriously the commands that he has given us in his word. Not as optional extras that you might achieve if you get there one day. But all part and parcel are of Loving God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, and loving our neighbour as ourself. Not dividing God's commands up into separate bits that we can pick and choose from, but taking seriously all of God's commands towards us. Look at your love for your brothers and sisters. Have you separated in your minds the things that God commands us to do, which we might feel have no immediate bearing on whether we love others? Have you reduced love for others to providing meals for one another and and Making nice comments towards one another. Love for one another is so much more than uh, what the world accepts as love, which is so often simply to ignore others and get on with your own lives and don't be a hindrance to other people. God's love calls us to so much more than that. Look at your obedience to God's commands. Are those commands burdensome? Or are they leading you on a path of life that that you're seeking to go down? Is your ambition in life really heading in a different direction? Has your Christianity become a game of cover-up as you try and perform like the minimal amount of obedience necessary in order to be considered a Christian? These are important considerations that John presents to us in order to, to, to show us what true, genuine faith is. But I recognize also that those sorts of questions and that self-examination is difficult because who among us doesn't at times feel the difficulty of obeying God's commands who doesn't feel the pull of the world and the influence of the media and uh, and materialism and advertising in our lives what encouragement is there for those of us who feels like God's commands okay perhaps they're not burdensome but they're still just so difficult to obey. They're still so difficult to reach. What encouragement is there for those of us who feel God's commands to be, uh, well, who feel the world to be still have a a strong grip on us? Who wonder whether we've really been set free from sin? The answer comes in verse 4 and 5, and that is the victory which we have over the world. In verse 4, Have a look at the verse and see if you can spot what is the victory that we have over the world. What is our victory over the world? If you're not looking at the verse carefully, it might be easy to jump to an answer and say the victory over the world. Well, if the world is a desire to sin and a desire to go against God, then victory over the world surely must be perfect obedience to God's commands at all times. Surely that's victory. Obedience to God. Verse four says... The victory over the world is not obedience. Victory over the world is faith. And it makes sense. Because what we said earlier was that the world is the ambitions, the desires, the loves, the beliefs, as it were, that stand opposed to God and all all that he is. And so it makes sense that victory over that is also a different set of beliefs and desires and loves. Victory over the world is not necessarily perfect obedience. Victory over the world is faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in, uh, Jesus Christ, it says in verse one. Faith in Jesus, the son of, the son of God, he says in verse five. The victory is not that we instantly become flawless individuals with no sin to our name. The victory is that we acknowledge Jesus to be The Son of God. Now, if you've been here the past few weeks, you will have picked up that this idea has come repeatedly throughout chapter four, acknowledging Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God. And it's so much more than simply a a, a doctrinal assertion. It's so much more than, oh yeah, I I understand that Jesus is supposed to be the Son of God. To have this faith is, is actually to put a deep trust. It's, It's a practical recognition in the one who is the Son of God. He's not just a a prophet or a good teacher. He is the one who, chapter 4, verse 10, has been sent as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He's the ultimate demonstration of God's love towards us. To recognize Jesus as the Son of God is to recognize that God has loved us by taking away all of our guilt and placing it upon his Son. And it's only with this recognition and it's only with this faith in Jesus Christ that God's commands can ever not be burdensome. If you don't have faith in Christ, you have not been born again. And so you have no power to obey the commands of God. They will remain burdensome. If you don't have faith in Christ, you do not have forgiveness of sin. And so uh, the commands of God still stand as a judgment against you. Here's where you fall. If you've not got faith in Christ, you do not have an advocate before the Father pleading your defense. And so the commands of God remain a dark cloud that hover in your immediate future, waiting to condemn you yet again. But if you have faith in Christ, all of your guilt has been placed on him. You have become a child of God. You have been renewed by him and you have received his spirit to help you to cause you, to teach you how to live in obedience to the commands God has given us.